The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Some of Jesus' disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, we have prescribed for us this morning one of my favorite collects in the whole of the prayer book. This is the one where we say, Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. This, unfortunately, is such a great collect and so well known that inevitably in any Episcopal circles, whenever somebody gives you a calendar or a schedule or a list of rules, they always say, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. And everybody chuckles. But every time I hit that collect, every time we come around to that, I am reminded again, and I've said this before, of just how deeply rooted in the hearing, the reading, the learning, the inwardly digesting of Scripture, our Anglican tradition is. And one of the things that you have to do when you read Scripture is you need to understand the kind of thing that you are reading. I remember when I was uh, uh, really little, I would, uh, I, I had, uh, go, we'd go visit my grandparents, and my, most of my cousins were older than I was. So they would be playing games that I wanted to play, but I couldn't play because I wasn't good enough to actually be competitive, and I was just annoying. And so I would be kind of off to the side, and I'd be reading, you know, like the instructions for one of the games, so that, you know, trying to bone up so that I could get better. 
and, and I, was, I was reading the instructions for uh, using a Frisbee, but somehow I thought that it was for ping pong. And you can imagine how that worked out. Once again, Jason was not able to play with his cousins. But the point is, if you're reading something that is for, given for one purpose, you need to not take it and try to apply it to a different purpose. And that's especially important when we read texts like what we have here in Isaiah. Isaiah talks about the new heavens and the new earth. And this may be familiar, uh, those of you who only go to church on Christmas, uh, because usually you get this passage read out of Isaiah 11, which talks about the, the shoot coming out of the stump of Jesse, uh, the, uh, from his roots a branch bearing fruit, the Spirit of the Lord will be rest upon him, Spirit of wisdom and understanding. This is all about Jesus. Remember, if you don't know the answer, Jesus is always a good guess. And then go on, you know, it says, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. And everybody just feels all warm and fuzzy uh, at, at the Christmas service. And so that's from that first part of Isaiah, probably written before the nation was sent off in exile. Here in the last part of Isaiah, probably written afterward, we have the same image. That never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who doesn't live out his years, somebody who dies at a hundred would be thought a mere youth, would be considered accursed. No, in this, in this new heavens and new earth, the wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion eats straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says Yahweh. So we read this and we think, well, what a wonderful, wonderful kind of picture. And we also, if we're paying any attention whatsoever, realize that this world that is being described here looks nothing like the one we live in, right? I mean, if you're going to have the wolf and the lamb lying down together, you're going to be replacing the lamb on a pretty frequent basis. Right, the lion eating straw like the ox. The lion, the lions right now are not going to be happy eating straw like the ox. They'll be happy eating the ox, but not eating straw like the ox. This picture that is being drawn here is one of a very different kind of existence, and it's one that God will bring about, as we prayed about in our psalm. But there are, I think, three approaches to reading this kind of stuff in Scripture, two of which are very, very common and are distinctly unhelpful. And so as we all learn to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, we want to avoid these two. The first is to look at this picture as something that is strictly about something that God is going to do in the future, that we have nothing to do with. This seems to have been the problem in Thessalonica. So if you read the story in Acts, this is actually the one place in Scripture where a guy named Jason is mentioned. So Acts chapter 16, uh, Jason actually uh, uh, harbors Paul and Silas after they're getting in trouble, and then they can't find Paul and Silas, so the crowd takes Jason out and beats him up. I don't know how well my parents knew that story when they named me. Maybe I can ask. That, that, that would be fun at the Thanksgiving table. 
But, but Paul was only in Thessalonica for a very, very short time. He, he says that uh, he, he disputed in the synagogues for, for three Sabbath days. So he was there for two weeks, maybe three, before he, as was often the case, got run out of town. And it seems that he had the opportunity to teach the church in Thessalonica, this new group of believers in Jesus, uh, about, about the glory of the Lord's coming. And, and in fact, the, probably the very earliest text, the oldest text that we have in the New Testament is First Thessalonians. It's this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And one of the things he talks about in this, in this letter is, is the, the, the uh, future glory that is to come when the Lord comes. And it, it seems that they misunderstood this teaching because in Second Thessalonians, which was probably not written very long after First Thessalonians, he has to go back and say, okay, yes, Jesus is coming. Yes, he's coming back. No, that doesn't mean you're just supposed to like go sit on a hillside and wait for him, right? He says, some of you are not busy, are not productive. Some of you are just busy bodies. Some of you are goofing around. One, one danger of reading this, these apocalyptic texts, these texts about future uh, heavens and earth, uh, is that you, you strictly look at it as something that's coming later, and so you just sort of sit around and wait for it. You may have noticed uh, when we read First uh, Corinthians 15 earlier in this year, this glorious passage about the resurrection, as Pastor Paul spends an entire chapter talking about the wonders of the resurrection to come, he says, therefore, my brothers, stand firm and let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So knowing that Christ is coming back, knowing that He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, as we, as we affirm in our creed, doesn't mean that you just sort of sit around and wait for that to happen. It certainly doesn't mean that you don't give any care to the world that we're in. You don't say, well, trying to take care of things here is just like polishing brass on the Titanic. It's all going to get burned up anyway. But then there's another problem that comes, because people will react so hard against that, against the idea, well, God's just going to take care of it all anyway, so I don't need to even think about it, that, that they say, well, we need to be the ones then to take care of it. This would be an an immanentized eschatology, for those of you who like those big words. We see this all over the place in, in uh, things like public policy, where people are convinced that if you can just get your hands on the levers of government, you can somehow make the world a spiffy enough place for Jesus to come back to. That we, he, He's just waiting for us to get it right, and once we do, then, then He's going to come. So we have, to, we have to work really hard to get it fixed up. This also happens, tragically, in the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian of the 20th century who was martyred by the Nazis, pointed out in his book Life Together that there is in the church a particular type of person who likes to hold up this visionary ideal of what a church ought to be. And then when the real church fails to live up to that, he becomes what Bonhoeffer called the despairing accuser of the brethren. You may have encountered this sort of person. They've got this idea of how things ought to be, and if their experience of a church doesn't measure up, if somebody lets them down, or if they feel like people aren't really being authentic enough, or people aren't really committed enough, then they 
shake their heads in judgment. As I often have to remind myself, there is no church for perfect people. If there were one, I wouldn't be able to be part of it. And so in all kinds of ways, we look at this ideal that God calls us to, and we can try to make it real on our own, just in our own strength, and inevitably that's going to be a losing battle. Inevitably that is going to fail, and the result of that failure is going to be disappointment and discouragement, and quite often it means accusing somebody else of being responsible for that failure. Certainly it wasn't yourself. No, I think the kind of eschatology we're called to have is what scholars call an inaugurated eschatology, where we recognize that this future, this new heavens and new earth, is something that is to be experienced fully in the future, but that it is also breaking into the present. We have too much, too much in Scripture, in what our Lord said to us about the way that the Holy Spirit works, in what Paul said to us about living out the resurrection and and living out the righteousness that is ours through Christ now, to say that all that comes later. But there's also too much, frankly, of reality that we encounter, and also too many cautions, including Paul cautioning a bunch of yo-yos in Thessalonica to actually get, get a job. For us to say, well, it's just all something else that's going to happen later and we'll let God sort it out. Now, the future is breaking into the present. And we affirm that in our creed. We affirm that we are waiting for Jesus to come to bring his kingdom in full. But we also pray in our Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we do that, we're not just saying do that later. We're saying we want to begin to see that now. There's an already not yet tension to this. And so, my brothers and sisters, as we hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest these texts, I urge you to bear always in mind that we have a hope. We have a hope for a future that begins in the present. After all, if we're talking about eternity, now is included in eternity, isn't it? Amen.